with the uh, block parties, we say, in every way possible. It really took a community to pull that off yesterday. Um, being involved with it, you just sometimes don't realize all that is involved. And I don't know everybody who was on the steering committee, but I know John Hoppy and Ken Mogg and uh, Lacey Fur and, and Jim Swearingen and, and others. If I didn't mention your name, um, thank you for your hard work and thank you for all those who gathered around them and made it happen. I, I think it's awesome. Uh, there were over, you know, literally hundreds of children who got backpacks and school supplies, families that got a free meal. I had parents that I chatted with who just thanked me and said how generous it was and how glad they were to be there and how much fun it was. And I have only two children, and as we put them into school in the fall, I know there were, even just for elementary and high school, there were school fees, you know, there were, you had to buy school clothes, because a lot of my kids would go through them, you know, you had to buy school supplies and backpacks and stuff, and it could be, it could be trying on a family. So, to literally serve the families of our community and to help them in this way, but also just to be a presence here that says that the church of Jesus Christ cares about the people of this community and to invite them into our property and to feed them and be with them. I thought it was fantastic. I thought it came off so well. Changing topics. Uh, Have you been watching the news with the whole uh, Dan Cathy, Truett Cathy's son, and the definition of marriage? And and he personally, in an interview, said that he, he believes that marriage is between one man and one woman. Um, and the firestorm, as if, as if the, the world didn't know, as if America didn't know that there were people of conservative values around. As if, that if you were in, in involved in any organization or in any kind of leadership, of, you know, that you would have a value different than, than some of them. It, it's just bizarre, almost, that, that everybody seems surprised that, that a Christian had that value. The interesting thing to me is in some of this backlash, it's, almost, it's been so ironic to me to watch the culture of tolerance. The mayor of Chicago, I, I watched the clip several times, the mayor of Chicago said, basically, this man does not have the same values that I have, that Chicago has, and he and his corporation are not welcome here. The culture, the the, the people crying for tolerance basically said, if you don't agree with us, you're not welcome. Define tolerance for me. Because I think somewhere there's a misconnect. There's there's a dis, you know, excuse me. On the other hand, this morning, as I come to you as a pastor with the word of God, is to say, you know, we are very concerned. And I watch a Christian community very concerned about defining marriage biblically. And we should be. Don't get me wrong. We want to get that right. And, and we think it is best for our culture if they get it right. And best for all of us. But we need to be as concerned about protecting our marriages as we are about defining our marriages. Right? When the rubber meets the road and we go home. And we're married. This morning we are in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We've been walking through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And as you know, that that moves us into the life of David. And we are now in 2 Samuel. We come to David and Bathsheba and this episode in David's life. Where it doesn't matter how you define marriage. 
there was failure. I'm going to read just the first five verses this morning in 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 to 5. In the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent and he inquired about the woman. And then one said, someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of your men. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent, and she told David, I'm pregnant. And you know how the story goes on. But this morning as we come, we're just going to stay in this first part. Not so much the consequences that come next, but in the episode and its unfolding. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to your word this morning because we are a needy people. We are a desperate people. And apart from you, we can do nothing. And we need your word and we need your truth, not only to define us, but to empower us and to save us. Would you draw near this morning by word and by spirit that our marriages might be saved. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled this sermon, if you see it there in the bulletin, This Could Be You. Right? This could be me. And if you don't think that it could be you, then you're in a dangerous place. You're in a dangerous place. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, it's there in your bulletin under the first point. And this verse follows a list of things about Old Testament folks, about Old Testament truth and the stories that are there for us, the history that is there for us and unfolds and said that some of them were unbelieving and some of them uh, got involved in sexual immorality and some of them got involved in uh, various kinds of sins and we're told that these things were written for us, that we would be saved from them, that we would learn from them. And then he goes on to say, because this is God's people through history and his leadership through history, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Take heed. Beware. Be careful. See, if we don't think that it could be us, then there are probably a couple of things that we're not understanding Right? There has to be some things we're not understanding if we don't think that this could be us. If we think that's other people, right? then we always think it's, you know, it happens to other people until it's us. Right? And that goes in every category. But there must be a couple things we don't understand. And one of the things we must not understand is our own hearts. The Bible says your heart is deceitful above all else and beyond cure. Who can, who can know it? The heart is deceitful. And so we probably are not understanding the deceptiveness of our own heart. And and the ways that our heart can be fooled and led astray and, and the ways that they can be, our heart can be captured and, and fall into and become affected with things. And probably, secondly, we probably don't understand the seductiveness and powerful, how seductive and how powerful temptation can be. In fact, none of us really understand how powerful a temptation is until we're fully under it. 
Many times we think that wouldn't happen to us because we're standing on the outside and think, how, how did he get there? How did, why, would he, why would anybody ever do that? I would never do that. And we look from the outside. But we haven't understood as we have, if you've come a certain path in there, you reach a certain point. No one knows how powerful a temptation is until you're under the full power of it. And I think this is why the scripture actually tells you sometime, let's not test and find out just how strong you are when you get there. The Bible on a lot of things just says run. It says run. Flee from certain temptations. And I think the, the reason is because your enemy is stronger than you are. And stronger than me. And that in these temptations, if you go toe-to-toe with the enemy, you'll lose. You're going to lose. Apart from the grace of God. And the grace of God comes to us and says in many of these things, run. Flee. You're going to lose this battle. It's proven a thousand times over, isn't it? How many stories do you know? If we went around the room, we just got a microphone and started over here and said, tell me the stories related to the topic we're dealing with. Let's just go around. Tell me the stories. People you know, people you work with, people in your family, pastors, elders, friends, church people. Go around and we could tell story after story. And as often or not, it is the people you would least expect. They grew up in the church. They're a longtime church member. He was an elder. He was teaching Sunday school. He was up in the pulpit. The people you would least expect. You know, if it could happen to them, if it could happen to your elders, if it could happen to your pastor, if it could happen to King David, the man after God's own heart, it could happen to you. If we think that we are the exception, I would just say that's what most people think until it's too late. We're not the exception. I hear people say that it just happened. You have that conversation in the the aftermath and you hear it just happened. But the truth is, my friends, it never just happens. It can't just happen. It's like a a bank robber saying, I don't don't know, it just happened. I was walking by the bank, minding my own business, and it just happened. It didn't just happen. These things don't just happen. There is a process. There is a path that one must take to arrive at that place, to do that thing. And we see David, we we see this process. It always begins in the mind. The process, the battle, begins in the mind. It begins in the heart. Before anything ever happens, before anything is ever done, before one step is ever taken, the battle was starting to be lost in the mind and in the heart. captures the imagination and there are a series of choices and each one may be seem innocent in itself but it takes us where we don't want to be we see this process in James chapter there in the second point in your bulletin James chapter 1 we read about this process James says this in verses 14 and excuse me in 14 and 15 he says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And those are two different words. You get a two different thing. He's lured. There is something that is tempting. There's something out there. And then he is enticed. And that's the internal. Somehow that what was luring, he became enticed in it. Becomes engaged in it. By his own desire. And then when that desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings birth to death. The hardness of heart. A place in life where we don't want to be. There is this process. We see it in David's life here. I just want to walk through 
quickly and then talk about this, this path that David is on and then to take a look at what we can do not to go down that path. Right? Because the reality is it happens every day. It happens every day in a church in Chattanooga. Every day it happens in the life of a Christian in Chattanooga. So, the word of God, we see David in verse 1, in the spring of the year, in the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and all this, but David remained in Jerusalem. The Spirit is making a point that David is in the neglect of his duty. Right? The Spirit is specifically telling us it's a time when kings go out to war. David is a king. David didn't go. David stayed home. It says he sent others, but he remained in Jerusalem. It says he, he didn't go, and then he remained, and there is this sense of neglect. The king should be about the business, and he's not about his business. David didn't go. He remained, and it doesn't appear for any really good reason. In verse 2, it says, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. He's walking on the top of the king's house. He's really busy. Right? He stayed home because there were all these affairs of state that, you know, dawn to dusk. He couldn't, he couldn't stand to be away, you know, in the spring when kings were going out to war. He had to stay because he needed to lay on his couch and walk on the roof. Right? There's no sense in the text of any reason that would give him a good, solid reason to be doing the things that he's doing, to be at home, to justify his absence from his duty. It seems the Spirit, at least the way I read it, the way that it says here, there are things it could have said that would help us to see it, good reason to be there, but it seems to be saying this is a time of neglect. This is a time of laziness. This is a time when David should be about his business, and he's not. He's not diligent about his work. He's not diligent spiritually. You know, and this happens in the lives. You know, David is not a young man here. We're, we're to understand he's probably around the age of 50. And there is something for, for us, especially if you walked with the Lord for a long time. You reach a point in midlife. In fact, there's a lot of books out there written about midlife and the second half. There's a book for men called The Second Half. Because men tend to check out in the second half. You know, or, or a lot of us do. We tend to start coasting. At a certain point, been there, done that, been to Sunday school, I know all that stuff. You know, I read those books when I was young, I know all that stuff. You know, or been a part of that, I did my, I did my time, I'm, you know, I'm done. We tend, to, we tend to just get to this place where we become spiritually lazy. We coast on the past. But what we don't understand is that the spiritual life is a fire. It has to be stoked. Fresh wood has to be kept on it at all times. And if if fresh wood isn't on the fire, then a fire smolders and it dies, right, without fire. And the Christian life is like that. And so how do we, as men and women of God, get to down the road, be married for 15 years, 20 years, and 25 years, being a Christian and walk with the Lord for all these years? How do I get to be 50 in David's age and all of this and be on fire? Not spiritually slothful and... Lazy and neglecting duty and wandering around. Proverbs 6 says this. It's here in your bulletin under the second point. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come on you like a robber. And want like an armed man. Put the other proverb there because it's actually in two, twice it's repeated in the Proverbs. 
in chapter 6 and at the, toward the end in chapter 24, it says it again, verbatim. And I think what's said here is true to a large extent materially, but I also think it's very true to a large ex- extent spiritually. It's a fire that must be stoked. There's the old adage that if you're not moving forward, you're moving backward. In other words, there's no idle, right? There's no not moving. It's like you're either swimming upstream. If at any point you stop swimming up the stream, it will carry you backwards. If you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards. There's a fire that must be tended. Spurgeon says, having nothing to do, it's there in your bulletin, having nothing to do, the enemy found an awful work for him to do. For the tempter planted straight before his eyes a fair temptation into which he rushed as a bird into the snare, as a bullock to the slaughter. All of this is to say, I believe that David was not in a good place. Spiritually, he was lazy, he was vulnerable. He wasn't about the business he should have been about. And because he wasn't, he was vulnerable. And so in verse 2, it tells us, not only was he rising from his couch and walking on the roof and it says, when he was up there, he saw from the roof a woman who was bathing, and she was very beautiful. Right? He saw Bathsheba. You know, sometimes we can't help what we see. Right? I give you that. In fact, we live in, in a culture where it's almost like, you know, you can't help what you see, and you, you know, but sometimes we can. In fact, we need to be diligent and careful to try not to see those things that we don't uh, need to be seeing. Sometimes we can't, but... What happens is, even if we are surprised by temptation, and there is a sense that David was surprised by it, but his problem was not that he saw something that he shouldn't have saw, which sometimes can happen. The problem isn't that he saw a beautiful woman. The problem was that David was not in the place to resist it. David was not in the place to do what he needed to do to escape. Right? We can escape if the Spirit is ready. We can escape if our hearts and our minds are in the right place. We can be surprised and survive. But it has a great deal to do with who we are and where we are when we're surprised. But David doesn't just see her. It says he saw the woman. It says that he saw that the woman was very beautiful. You know, and it's just this phrase that says, but for me, David took notice Right? David didn't just see that she was beautiful, he took in her beauty. Right? It went from being outside of him to being inside of him. I don't know if that, let me try and, and wrestle with that. There is a, this is a crucial moment in David's temptation, and it's a crucial moment in, in your temptation on almost any temptation. There's a crucial moment when the temptation goes from being outside of you to being inside the gates. Right? There is this moment when it's outside of you, and if you're on your toes and you resist it early, then resistance is not futile. You know, resistance is possible and right. It becomes harder and harder when it goes from me seeing something and moving on and taking it inside, where there's that thing within us which we begins to have a conversation or begins to entertain. You know, we ask them in for tea, and we have a conversation, or we ask them in, and we, we, we entertain an image, or we entertain that thought, or we entertain this idea, and we actually start to befriend it, and this is, again, it always starts in the mind, it always starts in the heart, and it starts from being what's in the mind and the heart is what was outside of us, as temptation has come inside, and we've begun to parlay, it's the old word, we begin to negotiate, we begin to have a conversation that should never take place, 
Temptation would not be dangerous to us. We understand that, right? Temptation would not be dangerous to us if there wasn't an enemy inside the gate that opens the door. Right? We understand that. Temptation would just be like water off a duck's back. You could see whatever, but as long as what's inside is right, you know, it would just be water off a duck's back. You know, the gates are locked, can't get in. You know, temptation would be no big deal. The problem is, in the Christian life, the Bible is very clear. There's an enemy in your gates. There's a conspirator. And he will begin to negotiate with the enemy if you will let him. Right? There is this moment when that negotiation begins. And so this is a crucial moment for David. He sees something, and it says, and he notices that she is very beautiful. And something in him begins to cooperate. Martin Luther said that you can't stop the birds from flying over your head. But you can keep them from nesting in your hair. Right? And there's this this, this idea of temptations or thoughts that may happen. You can't keep them from flying over your head. But you can keep them from nesting. Right? Nesting in the mind. Capturing the imagination. Nesting in the heart where it begins to have a place, where it should have no place. Thoughts and images that should be cast out are entertained. And it's not explicit here, but how do I know that this goes on in David's mind? Well, A, because I think what's James that we just read and the process it's in, personal experience, been there, done that. But also three, it's what David does next. Right? Because what David does next is that he doesn't, brush it off. And David sent and he inquired about the woman, verse 3. Right? He didn't just notice her beauty. David pursues it. He inquires about it. Who is this girl? <laughs> you know? And if you're at work or you're here or you're there, you want to know her name. Or you want to know something about her. You want to know if she's married. Or you want to know, when you start inquiring, the enemy's inside the gates. Right? The door is open. A nest is starting to be made. He pursues her. He inquires about her. He wants to know. And then he finds out not only her name, but he finds out that she's married. Finds out that she's married to one of his colleagues, one of his friends, one of his mighty men, one of his soldiers, one of the guys who's out there right now doing his job. All kinds of alarms should be going off in his head, right? All kinds of alarms. And for us... You know, this happens. There are alarms. If you, if you are walking with Christ in any sense, if you love the Lord with any sense, and these things start going on in your head and in your heart, alarm bells start going off. But if we ignore them long enough, if we suppress them long enough, we even stop hearing them. We stop hearing them to the point that if somebody else tries to tell you, <laughs> dude, alarms are going off. Like, there's something wrong with this picture. We even become hard almost to hear it. He sends for her. He sends for her. Even now, I don't know. These are the things I don't know, but I know from my own experience that I, I look inside these things and I would say, even now, David might not be aware of what is about to happen. Even now, David might be thinking to himself, I just want to be kind to her. I just want to help her. Her husband's away. I just want to be a comfort to her or 
you know, give her something to do while, while her husband's out of town. You might be thinking there may be some way I can serve her. You know, when, you're, when your husband's away, maybe there's some way the king can be generous to her. These are the kind of things we do in the relationship. We start up a relationship and they ask your advice or they're going through a hard time or they're going through suffering or their marriage isn't going real well and they ask your advice and you start this relationship and your initial thoughts are, I'm just, I'm just trying to help her. You know, I'm just trying to help him, and, and, and I'm understanding. And, and by the way, she understands me. You know, and by the way, she, uh, he sends for her. I don't know if he knows at this point or not what's about to happen. Maybe he knows, and he no longer cares. And we get to that place, don't we, in our Christian life, where we know that it's wrong, and we know what's happening, but there, it's, somehow we get to the place where we don't care. The heart is deceptive. Once the hook is in, once the hook is in and the barb is taken root, the will is bent. Choices are made. It's very clear in verse 4 that it does end in breaking the seventh commandment. You know, this scenario is played out every day in offices around Chattanooga, in leagues and relationships all over Chattanooga, churches. I was in a conversation with a guy. I'm over getting my car fixed, and the guy starts a conversation, and he figures out I'm a pastor. Usually that shuts down conversation, by the way. You know, normally people hear that, and they're like, oh, okay. (laughs) But for this guy, it opened the floodgate. Started, we had two, his last two pastors had affairs with the secretary, different secretaries. But the last two pastors, one had been there like 30 years, one had been there just a few years. Both of them ended up leaving the church and leaving their spouses and, and in this affair. You know, in pulpits, this is Chattanooga down the street. You know, I'm not naming names or pointing fingers, but it, it happens every day. And the scenario, you just change, you know, you can just change the details of this story, right? I know it took notice of him. He was across the office and made a point to talk to him and asked his advice on a couple of things. And so I shot him an email and then I texted him and I got a text back. And well, then it got more personal and it just, down that road we go. Nothing, you know, no plan. No Christian starts a relationship with a person of the opposite gender with the thought of, I'm going to cheat on my spouse. Nobody starts there. And yet we end up there again and again and again. Pastors are not immune. Elders are not immune. Elders in this church, where I've sat and had conversations as they left their office, left the church, and left their wife. And, and just saying, I actually sat in Starbucks with a guy, a member of this church, who was telling me, and, I'm, and, I'm, and you know, my goal is trying to get you to follow Jesus. You know, that's what, if, if I have one of those conversations with you, I'm just... You've got to follow Jesus, right? In other words, you're contemplating this to leave your wife. Leave, you know, to follow Jesus is to go this way. And what you're contemplating is this way. You know, Jesus, right? You know, lift your eyes to Jesus. Are you a person? Do you love him? Do you? And I had the guy look at me and he just said, Robert, look, I grew up in the church. You're not telling me anything I don't know. I know the Bible. I know the Ten Commandments. This is what I'm going to do. And he did. And it's the last time I ever talked to him. Happens every day. People who sing in the choir, people who teach Sunday school, people who preach from the pulpit and lead our churches, and they leave a trail of pain and brokenness. 
my last 10 minutes, let me just walk through. How do we avoid this? Let me just throw a number of things at you. I'm going to give you four or five things. Here's some things that you can do and think about. As we, how do we not go down this road? We need to cultivate some things into our lives. David was neglecting things. And when you stop neglecting, when you start neglecting and stop cultivating, right, then, then the door opens up. We become vulnerable. And that's my first thing. I'm going to ask you to cultivate several things. Um, to, to not neglect our duty. And this is our duty. You know, if we're married, we took vows. We have vows that we took as officers in the church. We have vows that we took to our spouses in our, in our marriages. There are, um, in a sense, a covenant that we entered into with Christ when we put our faith in Him and said, I'm going to deny myself and take up my cross and follow you. And so there, there are duties. There are things that we need to not neglect. Right? So the first one is, as obvious as the day is long, is to cultivate your relationship with God. I mean, it's so obvious. And yet so many of us reach a point in our lives where we're like David, and we should be going out to war, and we're not. We're on the couch. You know, we're playing games. We're doing whatever it is we do, but we're coasting, and we've been there and we've done that, and we become vulnerable. To, uh, to cultivate our relationship with God. I mean, it is obvious. We need to be spiritually strong. We need to be spiritually wise. We need to be spiritually awake. And so I need to be close to God. I need His Word speaking into my life. I need to read these stories and to be, and to be warned and to be challenged and to be... And, and in doing that, as I chew on it and pray about it, I'm filled with His Spirit and, and I'm in the position to walk with Christ and do what is right. To do those things that keep us spiritually sharp, consecrated. Robert Murray McShane, there under the last point in your bulletin, he said this, a pastor from the 19th century. He said, omissions make way for commissions. You get that? It's omissions that make way for commissions. It's what we don't do that paves the way for sin. It's what we leave out. It's what we neglect Spiritual priorities, and so John Owen there in your bulletin under the same point, it says there is a virtual consent unto sin in every neglect of duty that makes way for it. Right? There's a, there is a consent. In other words, we never consent on the sin down the road. We never consent in the end product. But what we don't understand is that in every choice along the way where we neglect duty and do things that, that we're still, we, we didn't choose the end, but we get there because it's the little choices that get us there. It's never the big leap, at least not if you're halfway awake in Jesus. It's never a big leap this morning. I'm going to wake up and jump there. What happens is I wake up and I neglect this and I choose that and I neglect this and I choose that and I neglect this and I choose that. And, I'm, and then I wake up one day and say, how did I end up here? Often the first sign that something is going on in my heart is a loss of an appetite for the things of God. Loss of an appetite for His Word. I tell every couple that I counsel, one out of two marriages, according to the statistics in the United States, and they say the statistics are the same inside the church is out, one out of two marriages ends in divorce. And I ask every couple that sits on the couch, how are you going to not be that statistic? Because I'll tell you, every couple that sits on this couch plans or thinks, that's not going to be me, that's not going to be my marriage. Who sits on the couch, does premarital counseling and gets married, planning, thinking very likely, 
I'm not going to stay with this person. Right? They all sit there thinking they're going to stay, but one out of two doesn't. What are we going to do? What are we going to positively do? The commissions. The second thing, not only is cultivating that relationship with God, staying alive and strong spiritually, is to cultivate your relationship with your spouse. Go after your spouse. Right? It seems, again, these are so obvious, but you'd be amazed at how many marriages get 15, 20, 25 years down the road. And you live in the same house, you live under the same roof, but the friendship that put you on the couch in premarital counseling, that friendship that you just had to, to covenant that I will never let this thing end, that I will never let this thing die, that friendship, that love, that, that, all that that brought you into the marriage, if you don't nurture that, if you don't cultivate that, if you don't go after that, as I said, a fire, if you don't put new wood on it, will go out. Some people say, well, the fire's out. I'm like, yeah, put some wood on it. Go after. Go. I don't love them anymore. Love has died. Well, then go stoke the fire. Pursue your spouse. Love your spouse. Spend time with your spouse. The best preventative to being susceptible to temptation outside of the house is to look to your home, to look to your marriage, to get serious about keeping your vows, to love, honor, and cherish until the day that you die. If you will do that, if you will press into Christ and you will press into your spouse. The third thing I'll tell you to do is to cultivate a holy fear. Cultivate fear. You should be afraid. I'm afraid. What am I afraid of? I'm afraid of me failing, stumbling, sinning, doing what I don't want to do. You know, I'm, I'm afraid of Sin, and we should be. We should hate it, and we should be afraid of it to such an extent that, that in our hearts we cultivate. I, I actually have a journal, and on one page of my journal, I probably did it 20 years ago. I could pull out a journal and show to you on one page. Right in the middle is the word sin, and then there are arrows going out in every direction. I don't know what I was reading at the time that sent me off. I think I was reading stuff by John Owen, and, and, and it prompted me to make this. Yeah, it was John Owen, one of his steps of... Of, of conquering sin was to fix in your heart the danger of it. So I made this chart, and pointing out one direction, I put God. And then underneath it, I made a list of all the ways that if I commit this sin, it will damage my relationship with God. It will damage my closeness to Him. It will damage my love for Him. It will put barriers in my relationship with Him. And I made a list of all the things that I wouldn't want to happen. You know, and then I put an arrow out to my family. And I said, if I commit this sin, how many, how, what ways do I hurt my spouse and hurt my children and, and damage my family and their upbringing? And, and I put an arrow out to ministry. And I wrote under there, how many different ways would my ministry be, be broken and less useful if I do this? And all the ways that I become less useful in the hands of God or in ministry. Put an arrow out to others. In what way would my stumbling affect the people around me? In what ways would it be confusing and hurtful and damaging to the life of the church and the body of Christ? And I went on around the, 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 with about six or seven arrows just drawing up. Why? Because I want to have fixed in my head a good idea that this is bad. It is destructive. It destroys. It starts by destroying my soul, and it only goes from there to destroy other things. People, ministries, and so I'm afraid, in the best sense of that word. Look at Hebrews 3 in your bulletin there. The writer of Hebrews says, take care, my brothers. 
take care, be careful, be wary, beware. Brothers, unless in any of you, or any lights of church, you know that in any of you, it could be you. Right? That's the idea. It could be you. That, that in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading to you to fall away from God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Right? That's why I say cultivate your relationship with God. Cultivate fellowship in the life of the church. Cultivate places. In the, you're going to places that are teaching you and challenging you and, and feeding you and keeping you sharp and keeping you alive and keeping you awake. You know, exhorting one another every day as long as it's called today. Why? So that your heart won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You know, any one of us can get there. Like I said, I've sat across the table and across the couch and across the room with the hardest of hearts, in people that, that would make you fall out of your chair. How do we get here? How do we get here? We cannot be careless. So two last things and build some fences. Romans thirteen fourteen there in your bulletin, it says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. To gratify its desires. A fence is not a law. Fences are dangerous. Some ways you make fences. The Pharisees made fences, turned them into laws, and became legalists. Right? And so fences can be dangerous to talk about, but I believe that they're very helpful. In other words, a fence is something that you are convicted that you should do to protect yourself spiritually and morally. God didn't tell you to do it, but it's a good idea for you. Right? And we can't project them on everybody else and... and, and and get into that game. But for you, how are you going to protect you? How are you going to protect your marriage? Lynn and I had this conversation, I don't know, 25 years ago, especially as I entered into ministry and work with people. What would be the rules? How would, how would we protect our marriage from these things? You know, as um, soon as I got my new office, we had them put a window in the door. And, and I will not meet with a woman other than between 8 and 5 at the church while Cheryl's in the next room or somebody's in the next room. It's the only time I'll meet with you. Um, I'll never meet with a woman out. I'll never have coffee with you. I'll never have lunch with you. Not that I don't love you and not that I don't want to pastor you, but, the, you, you know, it'll be in the office 8 to 5 with Cheryl in the next room. Why? Because I don't trust you. Why? Because I don't trust me. Why? Because it's just wise to be careful. Right? There are a number of things like that that, that I do that we've agreed on. You know, Lynn and I have both talked through it. I think it's a conversation that you should have. I don't have... I don't compliment the physical appearance of a woman. If I've never complimented you, it's not. It's just, I don't want to communicate anything that isn't. It's just one of those rules that, for me, keeps me safer. You know, and doesn't put the wrong ideas in other people's head. One of my fears is if someone pursues me. You know, I'd rather not. It's one thing to be a David and pursue her and, and ask after her. It's another thing for me, for them to pursue me. That's a danger I don't want to get into, so I want to make sure that I communicate very clearly. You know, they're just... A thousand things as you work with women, as you are around women, as you, it's a world that we live in, or I'm speaking men to women, David and Bathsheba, but if you're a woman, it's the same thing. You know, and now it's the internet, and it's your Facebook, and connecting with old friends, and and just Facebooking each other, messages, and it goes where we start to cultivate something that shouldn't be cultivated. I have no personal communication with anyone that my wife doesn't know about. If you're hiding interaction, my wife has free access to my cell phone at all times. I leave it out. 
I leave it where she can get to it. I want her to look at it. I want her to see. There's not a text in there with a person that shouldn't be in there. There's not a call. If you're having communication with someone that you don't want your spouse to know about, you're in a bad place. There should be no communication, husband or wife, that you're having with another person that you don't want your spouse to know about unless you're planning their surprise birthday party. It will be the only, only instance. Give them free access. If you're hiding stuff, you've got to just say, why? You know, you have to live in the light, brothers and sisters. And that's what a lot of this is about. You've got to live in the light, in the light of God's word, walking with him, and in the light of pursuing your marriage as your vows, is, and, and, and open and honest, making rules and protecting and, and honest about it. We work together to protect our marriage. You know, and she knows what I'm up to, and I know what she's up to, and we do these things No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Our God is faithful. Right? God provides. God empowers us. He walks with us. He makes us strong. The Bible says he gives wisdom to those who ask. If the devil can't make you bad, he will make you naive and lazy and careless. Right? If he can't get you directly to do this thing, he will make you naive and lazy and careless. And then he'll get you there anyway. The battle is won, my friends, at home. It's won at home. It's won in your marriage. It is won in your walk with Christ and in your spiritual life. It is one in your personal worship, right? It's one. The battle is here before it ever goes out there. Before you take one step onto the battlefield, the battle is one at home and in your heart. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we all confess that this could be us. Help us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And Father, by your grace, I pray you would open our eyes to the danger that we might live in fear of offending your holiness. That we might live in fear of hindering the work of your kingdom. That we might live in fear of inflicting pain and damage on the people that we love in our lives. That we might live in worship of you, in love of you, in a desire and a joy of walking with you, knowing you, loving you, serving you, and being like you. Father, help us to cultivate the right things and to not be careless. Protect us. For we ask and we pray it in the strong name of our Savior, Jesus.